0: We are now five weeks into John, plus our Beyond John week, where we talked a little bit about worship. And uh, I absolutely, this is just such a privilege and a pleasure, uh, Todd always says it, to get to sit in the word and wrestle with what's happening and get to see Jesus bigger and brighter. I mean, every gospel, that's exactly what it's about. It's about understanding who Jesus is, and that's what all the gospel writers are trying to get us to see. So I here we could do a quick recap before we see what John's trying to do, in this specific section of the text. So, John, so far, John the author, verses chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, worships Jesus as God. From the very beginning, he is God. And he wants us to see that, he wants us to understand. And he just passionately shares who this man is that we're talking about. Then he takes us to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist does the same thing, wants us to understand who Jesus is, and he celebrates it, and he keeps exclaiming, here's the Lamb of God, over and over and over. He sees Jesus as God. And then we get to the first disciples, and guess what? The four guys they point out, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, they worship Jesus as God. You see a pattern starting here. John wants to make sure that we see this over and over and over this is who he is. And there's people to bear witness to this fact. Eyewitnesses firsthand that got to see this. Now he's going to stretch it a little bit. And he's going to go to more eyewitnesses at this wedding. But really he starts to change the narrative a little bit. This, this last time, last week that we talked about the changing of water to wine. Shares Jesus sharing one of his signs. Showing his authority. What he's capable of. And Todd talked last week. There's imagery and there's depth to what John is trying to capture in this. And the simple fact is, Jesus pulled off a miracle and the last people that you would expect the help at this wedding got to experience it. And the whole wedding, including the groom who didn't order enough wine at his own wedding, misjudged what he needed. Jesus stepped in and took care of his need. And John's going to take us in something kind of similar to what last week was with another relatively famous story. This is Jesus cleansing the temple which if you don't know what that means, he goes in and he's kicking people out. People that shouldn't be where they are in the temple. And John's trying to get us to see this. Jesus wants us to worship his father as passionately as he does. But in order to do that, we actually need to see Jesus for all that he is. This is how John's gonna wrap up chapter two. Trying to help us understand, again, who Jesus is, And how we can see him for who he is. And so he's actually going to share two things about Jesus in this text. In this cleansing of the temple. And then he's going to share one thing about us. So that's actually how we're going to look at it today. We're going to talk about Jesus first. Get our head around what Jesus is, who he is, what he's trying to communicate here. And then we're going to talk about us in light of that. So let's take a look at the text for the morning. After he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Now, his disciples, they remembered what was written, that zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the body of his temple. The temple of his body, sorry. That makes more sense when you put it in the right order. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at this text today that is so deep and so rich and so full of things to contemplate and connect to who you are, help us to be encouraged. Help us to not get overwhelmed. Help us to sit back and digest and appreciate and value how you have inspired John to capture the glory of your son. Thank you for loving us, for giving us this inspired word. Help us to stay focused on you. In your name we pray, amen. So this first point, John wants us to see that Jesus, who's the son, his relationship to God, is jealous for his father's glory. Very conscious use of jealous. He is very territorial he gets very upset over people who dishonor god and you actually see it in the other gospels too whenever there's a text that gets a rise out of jesus it's never about someone giving him a hard time it's never about someone beating up on one of his buddies it's not even in defense of his mother if someone lowers god dishonors god Jesus responds very authoritatively and very clearly. And that's what John wants us to see about this focus that he has. Todd talked about it last week in Jesus', in Jesus response to his mother when she says, Jesus, hey, can you, can you do these guys a solid and figure out how to get more wine here? And he just goes, look, there's a plan. Nothing's gonna get me off of my father's plan. This is more of that. John's doubling down on that, trying to help us see how focused Jesus is. And the first thing that I think we have to address whenever we're talking about this is the obvious imagery that comes up here. Making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. I don't know about you, but I go to a specific spot. Who doesn't wanna get behind this Jesus? When I was a kid, I wanted to be Indiana Jones so bad. I went for him as Halloween. This is the Jesus we can get excited about. He's taking names, he's pushing out bad guys. This is authority right here, and he's amazing with a bullwhip. Who doesn't want that? This is something that everybody can think, here's the savior, this is how he's supposed to be. It's so easy to look at this text and just see this massively authoritative and borderline violent Jesus, which seems kind of out of character for this guy who's not supposed to be rattled. And the reality is, the more I got to dig into this and read the history and read the commentaries, I don't think that's actually an accurate view. What's actually happened here is that current worship in the temple is lacking spirit and truth. We talked about that two weeks ago when we talked about worship as part of our Beyond John part of our series where we're going to pause for a week after we hear something that's really interesting and kind of work a little bit deeper on it, how that impacts us. We talked about worship being based on spirit and truth, spirit being deep in our soul, how our body emotionally reacts to something that we adore. And the truth that God, above all else, is the thing that we should be adoring. So when we get this picture, this imagery, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. These weren't a bunch of bad guys. These weren't a bunch of guys who just had this nefarious plot and we're robbing people blind and paying some high priest under the table to allow them to do this. It's not what was happening there. What actually was happening was like a lobster in a pot scenario. It was just one little thing, followed by another little thing, followed by another little thing that eventually created a scenario in which Spirit and truth had been removed and church had become transactional. This experience of going to the temple had become this box that you check. We've never experienced that, right? Drag ourselves to church just to check the box because then maybe we feel better afterwards because we did our thing. All these guys that are in there, the sellers of the oxen, the sheep, the pigeons, the money changers, they're actually based in the Old Testament. They're actually found in the law. They're all there with the purpose of helping people atone for their sins, give gifts to God, give honor and glory and apologize for what we've always and consistently done to offend him. But what had happened is little decisions here and there. These guys were actually sitting inside what's known as the court of the Gentiles. This is your fun trivia fact when you go to a party later today, share this. The outermost area of the proper temple space was known as the court of the Gentiles. This is where these guys were sitting. So if you were a non-Jew, but had heard about God and were actually interested in receiving God and paying your respects to God and being around God, you walked in and literally it was a zoo. You know what kind of smell comes with a zoo? you driven up the five before? That cow smell is not enjoyable. And this is actually what's blocking people from being able to approach God. Same with the money changers, there's a temple tax based in the Old Testament. We're not seeing this giant nefarious plan. What we're seeing is this ongoing little creep of where people, when they lose spirit and truth in their worship, they start to make decisions. And that's what Jesus is coming in to deal with. He's trying to take this situation and address it. And so his reaction to this situation is that he's demanding honor for his father. And you notice the verbs... That John's going to use to make sure there's, there's no ambiguity here in what Jesus is doing. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned the tables. Drove, poured, overturned. He's very clearly emphatic about what he's doing here. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There's no subtle like, hey, bud, you might not want to do that. The way that maybe we kind of get because we don't want to offend people. When people sometimes maybe even besmirch who God is, and we just kind of like, ooh, wow, I could say something, but... Mm, that'd be a really awkward rest of our dinner or lunch or workplace interaction or whatever the thing might be. Jesus holds nothing higher than his father being honored. And that's the biggest thing that John wants us to see. And as part of this, John connects the dots to here in verse 17. Jesus' response actually has a counter response. That this commitment to his father's glory is actually going to come with suffering. Jesus is laser focused on his purpose. And that it's actually been set up 700 years earlier, 800 years earlier through David in this verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is from Psalm 69, verse nine. This is, every once in a while you read one that like, Whoever the writer is or whoever's capturing it, they mess with the words slightly. These are the exact words. Zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, verse 9. It's a beautiful psalm. I encourage you to read it when you have a chance. What the psalm is about, originally written by David, God taps David to be the king and says, I want you to build me a permanent home in Jerusalem. You guys have settled down. You're here. I've promised to be my presence. Build me this temple, and I will be the presence inside the temple. This is how I will dwell with you. And so David, laser focused on God, prepares to do exactly that. And in his pushback from other people, whether it was somebody who worshiped other gods or just other people with with actual nefarious activity, David starts to get punished and challenged and threatened even though he's the king. And so this is a psalm of lament. Lord, save me from these people. I'm focused on you. Save me from these people, from this punishment that I can see coming, from this suffering, from potential death. Please do something. Rescue me. His imagery even gets down to having sour wine as he's dying. Guess who else had sour wine as he's dying? So the disciples see this as a fulfillment of who Jesus is supposed to be. From the line of David, John is burying all of that burying. John is baking all of this stuff into this text. So many layers of things. And he's giving us a solid in a couple of different spots by helping us connect the dots that the disciples remembered that it was written. They actually went back after the fact and pieced it together and went, oh, he's the prophet. He's actually fulfilling all of this stuff. He's the Messiah. He's actually fulfilling all of this stuff. All of these things that were set up before, he's doing the same thing. This is proof he is from the line of David. This is proof that he's going to be even better. And so in this passion, John is establishing already in chapter two what's going to happen. Now, some of the people who have read this letter, separate from us, this gospel back then already know the story, so they see it coming. Some people haven't. He's establishing what's happening, who Jesus is. And for us, with the benefit of getting to see backwards, we get to enjoy all this rich imagery that's in this text. And it all goes to set up the second thing that he wants us to see. That Jesus, the presence of God, is the fulfillment of God's promise to save us. The first piece of this is that he wants us to understand that there is no more need For this temple everything that david had done everything that solomon had helped to do by jesus coming in to this scenario john captures that jesus is trying to help us understand there's a paradigm shift that's happening right now so when we look at the text after he's cleared everybody out after his disciples remember psalm 69 we go to verse 18 so the jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things now this is not uncommon If someone steps in and tells the Jewish leadership they're doing something wrong and it sounds somewhat prophetic, they say, give us a sign. That can mean one of two things. Who gives you the authority to come in and touch our stuff and prove it? Show us a miracle. If you're with God, make something fancy happen. Jesus actually gives them both in this statement. 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. And then John helps us connect the dots because he goes, all right, I get it. This one, there's layers to this. It's a little tougher to get right away. He says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. In that simple declaration in verse 19, Jesus standing in the temple that was built for the purpose of being the presence of God. Jesus says, I'm the temple. I am the presence of God. I am the new. I am going to change how this works because I am God. He's taking us to a space that they can't even wrap their heads around because of this paradigm shift, because of this dynamic and this change. And by making that statement, John is capturing something that helps us connect dots even further. One, we all know the raise up the body part. He's pointing out, I'm gonna raise myself up. It's the first time he talks about the resurrection in John. So he's planting that seed. But he's also pointing out this. When he pushed all the animals out of the, of the temple, the animals were there as ritual sacrifice to atone for sin. This imagery of the new temple, the new presence of God, taking the old and sending the old out. He's declaring no more need for animal sacrifice. You have me. No more need for this once a year at the passover when you come to the temple no more need to go through this over and over and over you have me i will be this fulfillment so in that what seems like simple statement where we get very resurrection focused which is not wrong to see that jesus is trying to take us here sin and death sin and death are going to go through jesus no more need for sacrifice He's got it because he is the presence. He's pushed that out. You don't need that anymore. Death, when he comes back from the grave, John is foreshadowing all these amazing things that we hear over and over and over. Jesus so prophetically at the beginning of his ministry has this major movement that we usually get caught up in simply he's got a whip and he's going all Indiana Jones on these guys what he's actually trying to say is Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Now, everything except for God's overall plan, that Jesus is the actual fulfillment of it. That was a longer statement that may not stick as well, so I shortened it. <laughs> Nothing will be different. If you are Jewish all the steps, all the having to go to the temple, all of the animal sacrifice, you're now being offered in person, the presence of God to help you connect and go to for all the absolution of your sins. If you were a Gentile, remember I mentioned where Jesus was sending out everything from? the marketplace, the literal zoo that had blocked the Gentiles from being able to come in a worshipful state and focus on God. Jesus is changing that dynamic. No more need for the temple. No more need for the distractions. No more need for Jews and Gentiles to be separated. Now it's me. Now I've got this. Everyone can come to me. Everyone can approach. This is a massive dynamic change. How many of you are Jewish here? There's a rumor. I have it somewhere. You can tell from my nose. I had a Jewish person once tell me and my brother we had, uh, what was the word she used? Uh, Regal noses. That's when I knew she was Jewish. Guys, up until this, up until Jesus' arrival, we had hell. Hell. We had no way to come to him, to atone, to connect. And then just by coming into this temple, he's giving us hope. He's giving us this dynamic shift, this change that we should be so excited about when we read it. This is the first moment we, as believers, get to see the access that we have. Those who were in the church before this moment... When they were reading this, this is their moment. This is where they get to see this is why the apostles and all these disciples who are putting their lives on the line are coming because now we have access. This is an amazing thing, this dynamic, this paradigm change. In fact, I think we should take a little break and worship about it. Jesus changes everything. Everything. How many of you like change? Imagine everything that you knew in your attempt to connect to God was changing. Imagine you had a bunch of different gods around you and you were trying to figure out who it was. Imagine 2,000 years later. You come across Jesus for the first time and he opens up your ears and your mind and your hearts. And the first thing you hear is there's change. Change here that needs to happen. Change here that needs to happen. Maybe some change here, how we deal with other people needs to happen. The point of every gospel is is the author, John is part of that, is trying to get us to see who Jesus is. But in this section, John actually takes a striking amount of time, use of words, and use of detail to help us see the reaction to people when this happens. And so I mentioned two things about Jesus and one thing about us. Here's the thing about us. John's trying to get us to see that seeing Jesus more clearly is definitely life-changing. And it's not always easy. And he gives us some rich examples in this text to help to understand how it doesn't work and how it does work. So we're going to do these a little bit out of order based on how the text is, but I want to start with the Jewish leaders. Because they are part of this reasons to miss out on seeing Jesus more clearly. So we go back to verse 18 and we're going to see this. These leaders represent folks who maybe have seen Jesus, but their faith experience is just comfortable. They have their spot in their pew. They know they prefer 1030 or or 9 o'clock. They have a routine, almost like an athlete getting ready in the morning on Sundays. Maybe they have a specific type of bagel or toast breakfast burrito they know exactly whether they're going to get their coffee at home or go to starbucks it's just it's this nice sunday morning routine then the rest of the week Mm. to help us see this he goes to verse 18 so the jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things again they want to know dude you're on our lawn Get off our lawn. This is our thing. This is our place. Who are you to come in here and push people out? Tell people what's right and what's wrong. And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. And then John captures that the Jews respond with, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. It's taken 46 years to do this temple. We know this temple better than anybody else. We know the old routine. We know why we built it. We know how it's built. We know all the routines. We know who gets to pass through each layer There's the high priest over there. He gets the most access. We know how this works. Who are you to come in and tell us that it's different? John doesn't actually capture their response. Now, we'll get how the Jewish leaders look at this through the rest of the book. We know it doesn't work out well. I think he speaks volumes here by not taking us any further. Just them simply posing this question and going, "We don't get it." I have a very specific focus and style for how this is supposed to work, where I connect to God, and it's become more about the habit than about the spirit and the truth. Then he goes on, after the temple piece, and he brings up this other group that they're that they're. This is a great follow as they as they pass through this. They go to this as. as um, john whoever his name is as john works through the temple experience he's then going to talk about these guys as he starts to set up what we're going to hear about next week which is nicodemus he's going to show us this group he just calls many and what they love they love the change they love the different. they're drawn to it they love shiny and new well, they love shiny and new as long as it fixes whatever their problem is and does it quickly So he goes to verse 23 through 25, and he points out, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so they've left the temple, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John wants us to know, when Jesus left the temple, he kept showing what authority he has with God's people in their main city near their most important spot where the presence of God is. John doesn't want to capture the details of what it is because that's not the point of what he's trying to get to, what those signs were. His emphasis is actually here. They believed when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. When I read this, I had to go through this process, entrust himself, entrust himself. What all does that entail? And I stopped and I thought, when we trust somebody... How do we interact with them? We open up our lives to them. We connect with them at a deeper level. When they give advice, we listen to it. These people who are seeing these signs and knowing there's something different about Jesus, who are excited, who are following him around because he's healing sick, He's giving people what they want, what they need on earth to help start to point to who he is. And they're missing that back part. They're missing the who he is part. All they're seeing is the trick. Not to cheapen what Jesus is doing, but to point out that they don't see it much more than this amazing trick. So they're drawn to this new and exciting thing. But once Jesus leaves town kind of out of sight, out of mind, and Jesus knows it. As God himself, Jesus knows what's in their hearts, and he knows they're not getting past this point. So he's not swayed by them. He's not drawn by them. He's not taken off a mission by them. And they lose out. John's given us two examples here between the Jewish leaders who don't like things change and then people who are on the other side who love things that change. And neither of them are actually pursuing who Jesus is. Now I'm going to go just a little bit of a step further. Uh, John doesn't specifically talk about these, but in wrestling through this idea, I think there's two other ways, especially among, among us currently, that we can miss out on seeing Jesus more clearly. And this first one is that just wanna make sure God doesn't punish us. This is the world I grew up around. I was around Catholic church and Catholic school through 10th grade, through when I was 16. And it's moments like this text when I wrestle with what that experience was like that I realize. I had one friend total who passionately pursued Jesus out of the hundreds of people, friends and parents that I knew, who actually openly talked about him, openly wanted to share him, openly showed what I didn't realize for years, openly showed some level of love and desire to draw near God. Instead of everybody else, what what do I have to seize? Get degrees cool, what do I have to do to get a C on this test? I just need to get inside. I need my get out of hell free card. I need whatever it takes just to do enough that I don't get punished. Like, G- like Jesus, God is some sort of warden at a jail and we just don't want him to put us into solitary confinement because the people who are sitting there know what they've done wrong and they just want to figure out how to make it just right enough. When was the last time you guys were enthusiastic about someone sharing, someone who is going to punish you, either receiving or giving, this view of God and who Jesus is, how Jesus fulfills this is so myopic and falls off so short that when we have this view that we just want to get by, I think about all these friends, Never got it. These are friends that I still see on social media. I've caught up with a couple. All this time around God. There's no talk about it. There's no conversation. It's easy to miss him when we don't see Jesus for who he is. And we have on the other side, probably the most talked about Theological deficiency right now is that from God only punishing us and us trying to do just enough to God doesn't need to punish us. He's so loving. Why would anybody need to do anything? You know, if that's the case, he is a sick, twisted, evil God that his son would have to go through what he went through for no reason. When we don't understand both our need for a savior and who our savior is and how important that it has to be Jesus. It's another way for us to lose out. Lose out on the joy now and lose out on eternity with him. In this joy, we can barely even start to scratch the surface of understanding. But he also gives us this glimpse of the disciples and these realities that I believe he's baked in here that help us see Jesus more clearly. Now, three of the four of these are in the text. The Jews didn't get it. This many didn't get it. And make no mistake, the disciples didn't get it. When the temple was happening, they had no idea what was going on. And we know this because John twice says this his disciples remembered. And the context and the timing of this is not that it's happening two minutes later or in the moment. They're getting it three years later after he's been on a cross. But they're getting it. This is where they're different. And he gives us two things about what helps them get there. God is sovereign. God will open up our hearts and our minds. I will not deny that. I will not forget that that is the biggest, most important part. But John is capturing what that looks like, markers for helping us get there. One of them, and John is very explicit with this one, we spend time with scripture looking for more of him. In just a couple of verses... 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, they knew this, they pieced it together. They were looking at the scriptures, looking for more of who Jesus was, who the fulfillment of this promised Messiah was gonna be. And then he goes through the, ex- uh, the experience with the Jews, and we'll skip ahead to 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Not only that interaction, they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. After he was resurrected, all this stuff came flooding back to them because while they didn't get it in the moment, they continued to pursue it. And what they actually got from it was they saw this Bible which was just mostly the Old Testament at this point, maybe inklings of letters of the New Testament. What they saw was this rich, deep, full picture with 2,000 years of history coming to life in this man who sacrificed himself for us. They believed the scripture. They saw the fulfillment. They were ecstatic. Yeah, they went and hid for a few days, but they came out on fire And to a person gave their lives for who this man was. John doesn't want us to miss. They spent time in the word, the gift that God gave us trying to pursue and understand. And we have the same gift as the disciples. This is why we're so passionate about it at RCC. That we want people reading firsthand. See this for yourself. Read it. Wrestle with it. Work through it. Do it with other people. It's fun to go through the Bible and see these things together. This is such an encouragement for what we do around here. It's biblically based that when we pursue God in the text, God will help reveal himself to us. So they're spending time in the scripture, and then this is more of an implied. This is not overtly written, but when he says they remembered, and it's three years later, they had the experience with Jesus in the temple. And then he dies. They didn't fully get it, even reading the scripture. We've read in the other gospels. They're basically idiots. They're, they're slow on the uptake, trying to figure stuff out. But they kept looking For more of who Jesus was in their experience. Now, these guys got a firsthand experience with him. They got to see him. They got to continue to watch how he spoke to people, how he talked to people, who he talked to. They got to be drawn to this man and understand more and more of who he was and be revealed each time a little more about who Jesus was. Now, we, while we don't get to deal with him firsthand in the flesh right now, who knows what tomorrow brings? we get the opportunity to look back at the Bible and do the same thing. We get the opportunity to look at our lives and see those moments where we get Jesus, what those have actually helped us do. We get to look back at our epiphanies and our realizations when we first met him or when this pursuit first started. Maybe we haven't wrapped our heads around him fully yet. Maybe you're here because you're trying to process who he is. But you start to see that this pursuit God giving us little bits and pieces. This is an amazing process. And part of the byproduct, this is the one John doesn't state in this text. But when you get those other things, when you spend time looking in the Scripture form and staying with it even though you may not get it right away, and spend time reflecting on your life even though you may not get it right away, you may not see it right away, he gives us this gift of when people do get it, they can't help but give it away. I'm a beneficiary of this. I came from the culture of Jesus as a warden. You just want to do enough to, get out of he- to not have to go to hell. And then I got here. I had people who do this just like the disciples did, who pursue this just like the disciples did, and they gave it to me. They sat with me and helped me read the Bible. They sat with me and helped me process what I was experiencing There's no better gift that we, for what we can control, can give people. The time and attention and desire to have them help see this. If you're relatively new here, and maybe you're not as connected, come see me after. Grab Keith Gove. Grab Sharia. Grab anybody. Find people who will help you do this. It is the best gift you could possibly have. So today, to celebrate that gift... We're going to take communion and we're going to do it just a little bit different today. Traditionally, we'll take it and we'll sit in introspection. We're doing this together today. We're doing this in celebration together today. We're going to do this upbeat and fun and excited because this not only is pointing to in the temple that he is changing everything... That we get the example of guys, if you're sitting here and you're pursuing him and you're struggling with who he is, you're struggling with a circumstance, you're struggling with something, this is wonderful news. You may not get it right now, but we're gonna get it. So we're gonna take communion together and we're gonna pledge that we will continue to do what RCC has always wanted to do read the word for ourselves, give it to other people, and enjoy it together. So, one functional moment, you're gonna see two sets of cups because we're all still just a little bit trying to figure out when the next outbreak is gonna be or whatever it is. One has bread in it, one has juice in it. You're gonna double cup, we're two fisting today. So when you're trying to figure out where the bread is, it's in one of the cups. So come on up, Sharia, let's, let's do this. Everybody come on up, come grab. There's, there's stuff up in the back for everybody if you're upstairs. If we don't have enough, let us know, we'll run it up to you. Let's celebrate communion together. Hold your elements until you're done. We're gonna take them together.
1: Rise up, everybody say rise up. All together with one one voice, we can rejoice in the beauty of the risen Lord. Rise up, everybody say rise Rise up. All together with one voice, we can rejoice in the beauty of the risen Lord. Lord. Our eyes will open. The revelation, the one the salvation on the other side. Our hearts were lifted, they were made to sing. Convicted as he heals, the afflicted let the saved bring their offering. Oh, rise up, everybody say rise up. All together with the one voice, we can rejoice in the beauty of the risen Lord. Rise up, everybody say rise together with one voice we can rejoice in the beauty of the risen Lord. <laughs> Our lives are dead, no good light. Until you <PHEN SHA2> save the creation <slept> you made by a sacrifice. Our hearts live lifted, they were made to sing. come as the hills, the above the blood of the with offering. Oh, oh. Rise up, <laughs> everybody say rise together with one voice we can rejoice in the beauty of the risen Lord. Rise up, everybody say rise up, all together with one voice we can rejoice in the beauty of the risen Lord.
0: Jesus took the bread when he was sitting with his disciples. When you broke bread with somebody back then, it meant you were in. This was a relationship, this was a bond. And he said, through my body, this is the bond that we're going to have. As this symbolism, not only am I offering my body as a sacrifice, my body will be the connection that we will share together. So when we take this bread, I want you to turn to somebody. If you don't know them, ask their name because you're going to turn to them and you're going to tell them by name. Randy? This body's for you. Sharia? Yes. He did this for you. This body is for you.
1: For you too, Brian.
0: Let's do this. Turn to your neighbor, tell him, this is done for you. This cup, this cup is a promise. This cup is a promise that his blood is enough for us. This cup is a promise that we will have a feast with him when he returns. Turn to your neighbor, someone else, who you have not said it to yet. We're meeting people today. Jeff, you can talk to Janelle, that's my wife right behind you. Blaine, this is for you. Cheers, cheers. (laughs) my prayer for this church. This was our takeaway for today. This is my prayer for this church. That we continue to savor what Jesus promised he would do. From chapter 2 of John, he shares the depth and the mystery of how all this stuff works. And then he gives us this opportunity to reflect and remember on it. And so that we as RCC will pledge to continue to be together in this, to be one, to be the body, to be the lighthouse that he wants us to be. So gracious heavenly father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being this wonderful God. Whose son, whose very essence of you came to save us, when we didn't deserve it, came to save us. Help us in our hearts and our minds to savor this gift above all else and to want to give it away passionately. Thank you for being our big God. Thank you for having this big plan. Thank you for being three in one, for giving us yourself, your son, the spirit to help us through while we wrestle to understand this stuff. Thank you. Thank you. For giving us hope that we will get it as much as you allow us now. And when we get to be in heaven with you, we will get it fully. In your name.